What does it mean to be Jewish? And what makes Jewish culture so meaningful believers, whether Jewish or not? The truth is most people miss the brilliant tapestry of culture that is the Jewish heritage. But a significant world lies at the intersection of Jewish experiences and expression. We'll explore that world today. Hey, welcome to the Land of the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Israel scholar. I'm John Geiger, and of course, Israel has been on all of our minds for months now. Many of us have been struggling with questions, you know, what to think, what to feel. And in the midst of all this, God's heart for the Jewish people remains unchanged. He is faithful to his chosen people. Amen, Charlie. Amen, John. And as this year is drawing to a close, our friends at Life and Messiah would like to help you better connect with this crucial aspect of God's character. They're offering their new book, Sharing God's Heart, to land in the book listeners. This 30-day guided reflection will help connect you with God's heart for His precious people. The articles, which were written by Life and Messiah staff, provide insight into Jewish life and culture. They can help prepare you to share with your friends the peace of Messiah they so desperately need. Now, if you'd like one of these insightful books for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out how you can receive your copy. That's lifeinmessiah.org. And now let's take a look at current events from the Middle East region. The war in Gaza now starting its 10th week. What's happening on the battlefront, Charlie? And just as significantly, what's happening in the struggle over the hostages? And what about the PR battle being waged in the media? Well, Hamas violated the ceasefire by not following through on its pledge to release all female hostages and then by firing rockets against Israel. Now, Israel, as a result, resumed its ground and air campaign. Uh, The ground campaign is still ongoing in northern Gaza, and the air and ground campaign has now begun in southern Gaza, especially around the city of Khan Yunus. The U.S. has been pressuring Israel to do more to avoid civilian casualties. So in response, Israel issued a detailed map dividing the Gaza Strip up into hundreds of separate zones. As the fighting expands into different areas, they'll warn citizens to relocate to a nearby area where there won't be fighting. Uh, The hope is that this will remove the need for mass evacuations and make it more likely that civilians will move away from the areas of fighting. The remaining hostages, they're in limbo. While another pause might be negotiated, it's unclear how much Hamas can be trusted. It's not even clear how many hostages are still alive. Several individuals who had earlier been identified as hostages have now been reclassified as dead. Some were killed during the abduction or later died in captivity. Hamas has refused to supply a count even of those still alive and being held. On the PR front, well, that battle continues to be fought in the media. President Biden has been supportive of Israel, but he's getting pressured by the progressive wing of his party, which is far less supportive. I've been disturbed, John, by two realities in the PR battle. The first is how naive much of the press has been in their coverage. They take news reports from Hamas and news reports from Israel as having equal credibility, even though time and again the Hamas reports turn out to be false or grossly exaggerated. It takes time to verify reports. And by the time Israel provides the proof, the press has moved on to the next unverified claim. And that leads to the second disturbing reality. It's how uninformed younger people are on the situation. Uh, They get much of their news from social media, including TikTok, rather than searching out reliable reports. Israel has an independent press from all viewpoints, conservative, middle of the road, and liberal. Uh, They check sources and offer as balanced a perspective as possible. 
social media is not as reliable. So one of the first victims in any war is truth. And this war, of course, is proving to be no exception. Well, disturbing reports continue to surface now on what Israel knew about Hamas's planned attack before October the 7th. So what has come to light and what will likely happen politically once this war is over? Well, the level of information received and ignored by Israeli military intelligence is breathtaking. They had obtained a report of Hamas's attack plans a year before the attack. That plan detailed a coordinated assault using drones, paragliders, motorbikes, and other vehicles to penetrate the border at multiple locations under the cover of rockets, which is exactly what happened on October 7. Israel codenamed the plan Jericho Wall, but it was dismissed by upper-level officials as, quote, aspirational rather than operational, and they felt it was beyond Hamas's ability to pull off. Well, then in July, Israel's intelligence division reported that Hamas was conducting training exercises that mirrored the blueprint found in the attack plans. The colonel who received the report decided the military exercises were just, quote, totally imaginative. In an internal debate, one analyst saw comparisons to the Yom Kippur War 50 years ago and warned against being taken by surprise. But that warning wasn't heeded. As early as 2016, Israel had information on Hamas purchasing drones, GPS jammers, and other sophisticated weaponry, and that Hamas was in the process of growing its fighting force from 27,000 up to 40,000 by 2020. On the day of the attack, those on duty at the border sent out warnings at 4 a.m. of unusual activity going on at the border, but no commands were issued to alert the soldiers on the border. During the attack itself, apparently there were cases where Israel's forces arrived on the scene but were told not to enter communities to defend against the ongoing Hamas attack, allowing Hamas to slaughter more civilians. Now, John, that's just part of what surfaced. More will certainly come to light when a formal investigation has begun. The one question yet to be answered, though, is how high up the chain of command did this information get shared prior to the attack? Certainly those who knew and chose to dismiss it, Well, they're going to see their careers, I think, cut short once it's all said and done. You're listening to The Land of the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, is a noted Old Testament scholar and Israel expert. We're looking at current events from the region. Work permits allowing Palestinian workers into Israel from Gaza have now been canceled, of course, and might never be renewed. In their place, Israel is now exploring the possibility of allowing in workers from India Why the change and how significant will that impact be? Yeah, well, prior to October 7, Israel had issued 18,000 work permits to Palestinians in Gaza, allowing them to work in the nearby communities in Israel. The workers helped care for and harvest the crops, and the wages helped support the economy of Gaza. But documents found during the invasion showed that these workers had also spied for Hamas, providing detailed house-by-house information on all the communities and the residents who live there. As a result, Israel right now is not planning on allowing those Palestinians back into Israel to work. But this does create a serious manpower shortage within Israel itself. Israel hopes that Thai and Filipino workers will return to work the fields, but Israel is also negotiating with India to supply these foreign workers. Prior to the war, they were in negotiations to bring 10,000 Indian workers into the country split between nursing and the construction industry. But now they're looking at allowing up to 40,000 Indians into the country as guest workers. 
a bilateral agreement's been developed. And once it's approved in the Knesset, the process of vetting workers could start taking place within a matter of weeks. The agreement will help Israel fill a crucial labor shortage. It will also help individuals from India find decent-paying jobs. You know, sadly, John, the ones losing out on this are going to be the Palestinians. And ultimately, it's Hamas to blame. A professor of chemistry at Ben-Gurion University has developed an E-nose, which paired with artificial intelligence is designed to detect and prevent food poisoning. Charlie, sounds like you've uh, sniffed out a significant invention from Amazing Israel. Yeah, this one's great. I, I, when I read the story, I was thinking of Jimmy Durante, you know, the nose nose. Uh, well, <laughs> the typical nose, the typical human nose, has about 400 scent receptors that can detect, amazingly, one trillion different odors. Well, this professor at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev has developed an artificial e-nose that he called Sensify, that's S-E-N-S-I-F-I, or Sense Sci-Fi. It has electrodes coated with nanoparticles of carbon that can detect volatile organic compounds given off by bacteria. Different strains of bacteria produce different smells. And by pairing the e-nose with an artificial intelligence program, the system can detect odors from salmonella, E. coli, and other different strains of bacteria. Today, food producers, if they think there might be a problem, they have to send samples off to a laboratory for testing, and the results can take several days. In contrast, Sensify's e-nose can operate on-site and provide results in less than an hour. In the U.S. alone, 48 million people get food poisoning every year. And while people always point to, you know, meat and poultry and fish— the biggest killer in the U.S. in the past decade has been romaine lettuce. Critics argue the logistics and the cost will limit the use of such devices, but Sensify believes the cost won't be significant and will be outweighed by the benefits of having less cases of food poisoning. Testing methods in the food industry really haven't changed in the past 50 years. But hopefully in the near future, an e-nose from Sensify, coupled with artificial intelligence, will sniff out any bacteria in your romaine lettuce before it ever makes it to the shelf of your local grocery store. And that will be another positive contribution from Amazing Israel. I love the fragrance of progress. Thanks, Charlie, for that update on current events in the Middle East. Well, a full program today, we're asking, what does it mean to be Jewish? What makes Jewish culture so meaningful for believers, whether Jewish or not? Plus, we'll answer your Bible questions. And then later on, Charlie returns for his devotional, "'Twas the Night Before." That's all ahead right here on Moody Radio's The Land and The Book. You know, as followers of Jesus, we're called to love people. We're called to love those we're trying to reach. And if you're going to love them, you got to know what they're about, who they are, their likes, their dislikes, their culture, their customs. And that's certainly true for us as we try to reach out to Jewish people. If we're not Jewish, we got to know about their culture and customs. What do you say we dig deeper? We'll do just that on today's edition of The Land and the Book. Welcome. I'm John Gager. And before we uh, connect with our guest, Steve Herzig, let me encourage you to think about this as an idea for reaching out to your Jewish friends. So you're talking with your Jewish friend and you take a deep breath and you ask them, what are your thoughts about the Jewish scriptures? What do they say? Roy Schwartz is with Chosen People Ministry. What's a likely response here, Roy? Well, they'll say it's a great book, it's a wisdom, it's a history, but they probably won't acknowledge that it's divine, that it's God-given, that it's inspired. They don't understand what that means. And so 
you can say that it's God's Word. And if it weren't for the Jewish Scriptures, I wouldn't have a Messiah, I wouldn't have faith. Uh, to me, what it shows me is the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the grace of God, the election of God in choosing Jewish people for His purposes, uh, not just past, but present and future. All of that is in the Jewish Scriptures. It is a Jewish book that gives me hope and life and joy and peace and points to the Messiah. Almost sounds like your own personal attraction to Scripture is something of a light for your Jewish friend, maybe, that they might observe. Right. I mean, they see what Scripture has done, the Jewish Scriptures has done in your life, and maybe they'll read it too. Roy Schwartz with Chosen People Ministries. Thanks for your time. Well, it's good to connect again with Steve Herzig. He's written Jewish Culture and Customs. Steve is an author. He's a conference speaker, a Bible teacher, and a guy with a lot of energy. We loved having him on some time back and said, we've got to have Steve back. So Here we are. Steve's back. Welcome, Steve. Hey, it's great to be with you, John. I thought the last time was a one-time only. Boy, what an honor. A second shot. Thanks. (laughs) Well, you know, you've got this book, Jewish Culture and Customs, which I want to jump right to the chase here. What can Christians, for example, learn today with regard to worship from Jewish customs? Is there something that that followers of Jesus could learn uh, from our Jewish brothers and sisters? Well, in my experience and in Orthodox synagogues, there is an emphasis, a high emphasis on holiness, the holiness of God. In fact, part of almost every Shabbat service is repeat, just like we read in the New and the Old Testament, holy, holy, holy. You know, Isaiah chapter 6, the angels are continually saying, holy, 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 kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. And in essence, John, it means separation. It means that we're to be separated, and and the more orthodox a Jewish person is, the more they want to be separated from unholiness. Hmm. And this emphasis on holiness, I think, is significant. In fact, in orthodox synagogues, the men and the women are separate. It's not that way in conservative or reformed synagogues, and really it follows the biblical idea of making sure that we're not distracted. You know, it's all about business, worshiping the Lord. And the other reason, actually, is a biblical reason as well. And in fact, part of the Jewish culture, some of our listeners might have actually met very Orthodox Jews, and they they come off as pretty uppity. They won't shake hands with a woman. The idea is because women at times in their month could be unclean, and they don't want to touch an unclean thing. Again, the emphasis on holiness. And so rather than ask and embarrass somebody like that, they just stay separate. And so I would tell you, holiness is something we in the church would do well. We are approaching the living and the true God. I'm reminded in Revelation, John, just how holy God is as he experiences it falls down on his face. Amazing. I think you're right. Holiness uh, tends to get casualized in our society. We're we're really into... Uh, you know, blue jeans and uh, lattes in our church services, and it gets a little too casual, I think, for a biblical definition of holiness. Oh, well, you know, that's interesting because it was a long time ago, 1976, but anytime I ever went to synagogue, I wore a tie, I had a suit. I mean, mm-hmm. it was a place you had to be, unless it was Purim. But the first time I went to a church, I was in California at the time. I'd never been in a church. Now, it is California. I am telling you, they were coming back in the 70s with flip-flops and jeans. I loved it, but it was so different for me. The culture was so different <laughs> for me. All right, give us an example from a Jewish custom 
that points to Christ, our Messiah. One that comes to my mind, anyway, would be our celebration every Christmas, Hanukkah. But maybe something else uh, is at the top of your brain. Oh, that's a real good one, John. You know, we think in the tabernacle and the temple stood a menorah, seven-branched menorah. And that menorah is a very important part of the furniture. But during Christmas, usually around that time, is a holiday that the Jewish people celebrate called Hanukkah. And what happened in Hanukkah traditionally is that since Antiochus Epiphanes attacked the synagogue, uh, the temple, and destroyed it, desecrated it, and so there was no oil for the menorah. When the Maccabee family started the uprising and were able to take back the Temple Mount and the temple, the tradition is they found not enough kosher oil. They found 24 hours worth, a little vial, and they put it in the seven-branch menorah, and it lasted eight days, just enough time to have more kosher oil to continue to burn that menorah. So today, at Hanukkah, we have a nine-branch menorah called a Hanukkah, and it's interesting that there's eight candles for the eight days, but there's a ninth candle, John, and that ninth candle is called the Shamus candle. It's the servant candle. Hmm. I found it so amazing that that ninth candle provides the light for the other candles and is a servant to them. You never light the candles. You only light the Shamus. Isn't it interesting that Jesus celebrated the Feast of Dedication in John chapter 10, and isn't it interesting that he came to serve, and he's the one that provides the light to you and me. We shine his light that could only come through him. You know, it seems to me that if we had a better understanding of Jewish culture and customs, it would have to impact the rising tide of anti-Semitism. What do you think? You know, what's interesting is that Jewish people— especially Israeli Jewish people, are recognizing that Christians, Bible-believing Christians, evangelical Christians, love the Jewish people. That's kind of defensive for them. They don't understand it because they've been persecuted in the name of Christ so many times in their past. But they find that the Bible readers, evangelicals, ones who value their Bible, are reading their Bible, and they find, hey, these people, Jewish people, are God's chosen people. We have the Word of God through them, and we have our Savior, our Messiah. Christ is Jewish. You know, John, I remember when I was living in California and I was being discipled, I was with a man who wanted to share his faith, and I went with him to learn from him, and we, we were visiting a Gentile guy who was working on construction. And my friend was telling him about Jesus and telling him that Jesus was Jewish. Well, he stopped his saw. <laughs> he looked at him. He said, Jesus was Jewish? He said, I always thought he was a Christian. (laughs) Well, that taught me a great deal, and it tells me that a lot of people don't understand the Jewishness of the Bible and certainly the Jewishness of Jesus. Steve Herzig is director of North American Ministries for the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. He's written Jewish Culture and Customs. Uh, You've written, anybody who holds the Scriptures to be the Word of God will desire a better understanding of the people he chose and called the apple of his eye. I'm assuming that's at least one goal in your writing this book. You want to call us to a better understanding of of how much, not just that God loves the Jewish people, he really loves the Jewish people, and by transference, so should we. Absolutely. He has a special plan and purpose for the nation of Israel, and we could read about that through the 66 books of the Bible. 
But John, he has a special plan and purpose for you and me, and that should encourage us as well. He cares about the nation, and he cares about the nations, and he cares about you and me. Well, give us another example of something from Jewish culture that points to something of Jesus. I love these stories. Oh, now I got to think of, oh, I could tell you, when you walk into a, a home that's Jewish, you're going to see as you enter a mezuzah. A mezuzah is a little, uh, it could be metal or wood. It's always on the lintels. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It tells us that the word is, uh, you shall bind them for a sign upon your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Those are tefillin, and you shall put them on your gates of your homes. So a mezuzah has God's word in it, and it's a constant reminder of the command and the declaration that Jewish people have. One of the passages almost every Jewish person knows is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And part of that message is from Deuteronomy, the fifth book in the Torah, is in those little mezuzahs. And as we think of loving the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, that's one of the great commands that Jesus gave and certainly could give us, when we talk to our Jewish friends, could say, hey, Jesus agrees with that declaration. Mm. It's one of the most important things. So it's a, it's a conversation maker. Well, speaking of conversations, I want you to uh, just circle back to our first interview with you. The moment when you met somebody in college who was a believer, it, it, it didn't get off to such a great start. But tell the story again. Oh, sure. <laughs> no, it didn't get off to a great start. Uh, right before my very first day in school, so I was in my dorm, I met a new guy who came up to me and said, do you know Jesus as your Savior? I said, no, I'm Jewish. So he said, oh, if you, if you don't know him, you're going to hell. And I remember, John, I made a fist. I was so close to, I didn't know who this guy was. I said, don't you ever talk to me that way again. But wouldn't you know, over time, we became very good friends. And as I said the last time I was on your program, we became such good friends, I watched his life. Mm. And so I spent three years watching his life, and it was totally different than mine. And he, we talked about the holiness of God. He was holy. There's something to be said for a holy life, a true bona fide Christian life that, uh, that addresses even the shortcomings of maybe a, a witnessing technique that might not be the most polished. What do you think? Exactly. Look, I don't recommend that. I, think it's, I don't <laughs> think it's the way to go, but I can tell you ultimately it's part of my story. Not a good part, but ultimately the Lord used it. And so I would encourage people to take the passion and the desire to communicate Yeshua, Jesus, to Jewish or Gentile people, but a show like this, talking the way you and I are having this conversation, can help us streamline, fix what we might say, and lovingly share the Messiah with folks and open up with a question. Hey, what do Jewish people believe? Something like that, rather than tell them bad news at your first meeting. (laughs) All right, let's get back to another uh, a thought here from Jewish culture that we might borrow. You talk about the importance of uh, days to remember in Jewish culture. How does that help us as believers? Oh, man, you know, if your listeners ever have a chance to go to the book of Leviticus, the book in their Bible where the pages are still stuck together, <laughs> they're going to go to Leviticus 23 and see seven feasts. And those seven feasts of Israel, and that's what they are, they point 
to a program that God has. You have Passover, which is redemption, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is really separation. We're, we're redeemed, we're immediately separated, and part of the family of God. And then you have First Fruits, Resurrection. All these are Jewish feasts. Then you have Shavuot, which is Pentecost, very important to the church. Uh, that's where we were born, a Jew and Gentile together, middle wall of partition being broken. And then the fall feast, Rosh Hashanah, the new year, the Feast of Trumpets, then Yom Kippur 10 days later, the Day of Atonement, and then Tabernacles, the Gathering, all those feasts together. There's books written about it, John, wonderful books. Uh, we have Friends of Israel have them. I can tell you they're an endless, wonderful study is those seven feasts of God. And they all point to truths of Christian reality. This is not an Old Testament thing exclusively. These are pictures and images of Jesus. Absolutely. Each one of them. Let me ask you, uh, if we don't engage Jewish culture and customs, what are we missing? What do we miss? Well, my first degree is in sociology. I love people groups. I love to know what they eat. I love to know what their traditions are. You know, in Fiddler on the Roof, Tevye looks at the audience and he says, why do we do these things? I don't know. Tradition. Mm -hmm. But you find that when you get into certain traditions, whatever they are, they have meaning and significance. And because God chose the Jewish people, many of the traditions within Judaism are actually relevant things for us who love Christ, who love his word, and who want to know him better. Wow. Steve, we love your heart for the Jewish people. We love the way you share about him, and we hope you'll come back again. Love to do it, John. Thank you. Steve Herzig is director of North American Ministries for the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. Well, if you have ever bumped into a passage of Scripture that made you scratch your head and say, huh, you might just be amused, intrigued, and educated as you stick around for questions and answers. That's next right here on The Land and the Book. Questions and answers. That's what we're all about on this next segment. Welcome back to The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. I love this segment because I'm curious too, and I have my own share of questions, as you do, I'm sure, when you open the scriptures. So let's find out what people are thinking about after we bring you this thought. Israel, of course, has been all of our minds for a number of months now, and many of us are just struggling with questions of what to think, what to feel. But in the midst of all this, we have to be reminded God's heart for the Jewish people remains unchanged. He's faithful to his chosen people, right, Charlie? That's right, John. And as this year is drawing to a close, our friends at Life and Messiah would like to help you better connect with this crucial aspect of God's character. They're offering their new book, Sharing God's Heart, to Land in the Book listeners. This 30-day guided reflection will help connect you with God's heart for his precious people. The articles, written by Life and Messiah staff, provide insight into Jewish life and culture. They can help prepare you to share with your friends the peace of Messiah they so desperately need. If you would like one of these insightful books for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button there to find out how you can receive your copy. That's lifeinmessiah.org. All right, like any well-ordered Bible, our first question today comes from the Old Testament. We'll go to the book of Exodus. Eileen says, it occurred to me that if God had not fed the Hebrews with manna and quail meat, 
There was no way that a million plus people could have wandered for 40 years. Has anyone ever studied how much food would actually be needed to feed that many for so long? I mean, this is nothing less than a miracle. Yeah, in fact, it gets even as a bigger miracle if you look at the numbers carefully, because uh, we know from Numbers chapter 1 that the fighting men, 20 years old and upward, there were 603,550. That doesn't include the wives or children. So the total number could have easily been not 1 million, but 2 million or more. Now, in Exodus 16, 16, God gave the Israelites instructions on how much manna to gather each day. It says, each of you is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person uh, you have in your tent. Now, an omer, since most of us don't know what it is, that's the equivalent of about two dry quarts. Uh, Since we don't know the exact number of people, here's a very rough calculation. If there were two million people, this would translate into four million quarts of manna every day. Now, there are 32 dry quarts in a bushel. So if you do the math, that comes out to about 125,000 bushels of manna each and every day. That's a lot of food provided by God. All right, let's go one book back in the Old Testament to Genesis. Marvin says in Genesis 5, verse 32, Noah is 500 years old when he became a father. In Genesis 7, verse 6, he's 600 years old at the time of the flood. How do we know how long it took him to build the ark? I was told 120 years, but how do we know when he started? Also, I've been told that he preached about God and they made fun of him. How do we come up with all this? Yeah, well, here's how I put all those pieces together. That Genesis 5.32, it specifically says Noah was 500 years old when his children were born. Now, I assume all three weren't born at the same time, but that was likely the age when he first became a father. Genesis 7.6 then says Noah was 600 years old when the flood came on the earth. Now, the idea that Noah was preaching to the people as he built the ark, well, that comes from 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, in verses 19 to 20 there, it's a little bit difficult to interpret, but it describes Christ preaching to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now, I think what Peter's saying is that Christ preached by means of the Holy Spirit through Noah to those now in Hades, the place of torment. The fact that God waited patiently while the ark was being built suggests the message being proclaimed was one offering salvation or deliverance from the coming judgment. The other passage that needs to be addressed is that Genesis 6-3, where God said, My spirit won't contend with man forever, for he's mortal. His days will be 120 years. Now, that could refer to the lifespan of humans declining to uh, the length of 120 years, though I don't think that's what it's saying. I think it's more likely saying that the amount of time left before God was going to judge the earth was 120 years. And I say that because the very next verse then says, God was grieved, he made man on earth, and he said, I'll wipe out mankind whom I've created. So if that's the case, then uh, Noah began building the ark when he was 500, and 600 or perhaps 620 years is how long it took then to build the ark. And then uh, the flood came. From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book, Bible questions and answers with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and we'll continue our Old Testament focus here with Gary's question. He takes us to Amos 9.15, where it says, I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. And Jeremiah 24, verse 6 says, My eyes will watch over them for their good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. Well, historically, Israel was pulled out of their land by the Romans after these words were written. So the question, when will these and other similar prophecies actually be fulfilled? 
Uh, these are some of the ones that I see in the Old Testament that point to the coming millennial kingdom, that, that time when God will fulfill all the promises he's made to Israel. And I think the passages actually help in this regard. That Amos 9, it's in a context where God promises to restore David's fallen tent, which is a reference to the Davidic monarchy that was shattered following the death of Solomon. He says it's also a time when the land will become far more productive, when the uh, planters will be ready to plant, but the people won't even have been able to reap all of the harvest up to that time. He says it's a time when all the exiles will return to live in peace. Uh, He says it's when the nation will never again be uprooted. That's that 915 passage. And it's connected to the reestablishment of the Davidic kingdom, which is what he then called there in verse 11, David's fallen tent. Now, the Jeremiah passage actually is uh, introducing then what comes up in chapters 30 to 33, where God points to the future restoration of Israel. Uh, He talks about a future new covenant God's going to make with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In fact, in chapter 31, three times he says, behold, days are coming uh, in verses 27, 31, and 38. Uh, The middle one's the new covenant, but the first one, uh, he talks about when he's going to bring Israel and Judah back to the land. And the one that follows it is talking about rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, which he says will then never be destroyed. Now, those passages and others, to me, point to that future messianic kingdom that hasn't yet been fulfilled. That's why in Romans 11, Paul talks about this coming fulfillment of all God's promises for Israel. And he says it's going to take place because the promises God made to the patriarchs were irrevocable. His gifts and his call are irrevocable. And that's why at the end of Revelation, Jesus returns to earth and he reigns a thousand years. That's when God's going to finally fulfill all those promises. You know, Charlie, as I listen to you address this question about Amos, I'm reminded of why it's so important that we study the Old Testament. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And to study it in context, not just to pull a verse out, uh, but to look at it in its larger context. Here's a question from Sharon. She wants to know what's happening in John 20, verse 22, when Jesus breathes on the disciples and tells them to receive the Holy Spirit. What's going on? Well, actually, there's two main interpretations. Some say that it must be a temporary indwelling of the Holy Spirit prior to the permanent indwelling that's recorded then in the book of Acts. But uh, the problem with that is uh, if it's describing a temporary indwelling, then why did Jesus tell them to wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit since they'd already now received it? It suggests that the indwelling he was talking about was still future. So I think a better way to interpret it is to see it as an illustration from Jesus indicating what would soon take place. In breathing on them, he's illustrating the reality that he would very soon be sending the Holy Spirit on them in his absence. He'd already told them in John 16 that he needed to go away so that he could send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, to them. And then after this event, Jesus again says, John baptized you with water, but you'll be baptized by the Holy Spirit not many days from now, Acts 1.5. So in the larger context, I think what he's really doing is saying to the disciples, in essence, I'm going to be leaving, but uh, by this illustration, I'm showing you, I'm still going to be with you in presence through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And in those other passages, he lets us know that was going to happen very soon on the day of Pentecost. While speaking on Isaiah 60, verse 7, J. Vernon McGee said it was a reference to temple sacrifices to be offered in the millennial kingdom. Uh, How do you take this passage, Charlie? Well, I agree with Dr. McGee. Uh, There will be temple sacrifices during the millennium, and uh, that's what's being described in that Isaiah 60 passage. Uh, By the way, he also references uh, Ezekiel 40 at times, and I think that also describes the same sacrifices that'll be offered. Now, here's where people have problems. Uh, We know that no sacrifice apart from that of Jesus on the cross ever took away sin. That's what Hebrews 10.4 says. But the writer of Hebrews also says that the Old Testament sacrifices provided outward cleansing. That's Hebrews 9.13. 
And I also believe uh, Dr. McGee is correct. He says the millennial sacrifices will point back to what Jesus did on the cross, just like the Old Testament sacrifices pointed forward to his sacrificial death. Nancy says in Acts chapter 13, it states that Saul was also known as Paul. Thereafter, he's known as Paul. Who or what caused this change? The name Saul, of course, is very Jewish, but he didn't give up his Jewishness. Yeah, like many people in that day, uh, Paul had two names. He had a Jewish name, Saul, and a Roman name, Paul. And when he's first introduced in the book of Acts, Luke focuses on his Jewish zealousness and calls him Saul. But after his conversion, during uh, the time he finally goes out on his missionary journeys to the Gentiles, Luke in Acts 13.9 now switches to his Roman name since he's going to the Gentiles. And by the way, uh, we can see another example of this with John Mark, the author of the book of Mark. John was his Jewish name, and Mark from Marcus was his Roman name. And that's a great set of questions that we've enjoyed looking at today. Yours is welcome anytime. Send us an email, will you? The land and the book at moody.edu. That's how you get that question to us. The land and the book at moody.edu. I'm looking forward to Charlie's devotional. It's next here on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. We're all familiar with Clement Moore's famous poem, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas." What about the night before Hanukkah? Charlie, I understand that's where our devotional is focused today? Yeah, that's where we're heading, John. Now, where in the Bible are we connecting? Haggai chapter 2. All right, I'm looking forward to that. First, though, a thought from someone who has traveled to Israel, has come back, has been deeply impressed, and just wanted to remind us of their experience in this quick thought. I went to the Holy Land when I was about 25 years old. It was at a point where I was... um, studying the Bible and I went to church, but up to that point I felt like I was a churchgoer, but faith wasn't part of my life. The trip to the Holy Land allowed me to see every single story from the Bible as if it were real. And not only that, I also gained a historical perspective because the current events suddenly made so much more sense because of the rooting in history. It was devastating to see how many centuries People have not been able to resolve their view of of the Lord. But what I kept with me for the next 30 years has been that our Christ walked those streets in Jerusalem. And uh, I felt like every single thing that I try to wonder and believe in that is in God's Word, I go back to the fact that, well, Jesus was real, and His world was real, and, and these messages from God in the Bible are real for me, too. All right, Charlie, the night before Hanukkah, we'll hand things over to you. Well, thanks, Johnny. And I can say without a doubt, anyone listening today probably knows the words of Clement Clark Moore. Uh, But in that crazy twist of fate, if we hadn't mentioned what he had written, uh, most people wouldn't know what he's really known for. You see, Moore was a professor of Middle East and Greek literature and theology. In fact, one of his major scholarly achievements was a two-volume tome with the weighty title. Are you ready for this? a compendious lexicon of the Hebrew language. I think it's reasonable to assume that most people listening have not recently picked up a copy to read. But we do know a poem that Moore wrote as a Christmas present for his two daughters. You know, he never intended it to be published, but a friend sent it to New York's Troy Sentinel newspaper, which printed it on December 23, 1823. 
For 14 years, the author remained anonymous until another friend publicly identified Moore as the author. And ever since, this classical scholar and linguist has been known for that one poem, which he titled A Visit from St. Nicholas. But in the final indignity, his official title has been replaced in the minds of most by the first line of the poem, "'Twas the night before Christmas." But what does that odd bit of history have to do with today's devotional on Hanukkah? Actually, two quirky comparisons connect them. First, just as this scholar is known for the one piece of writing he didn't even bother to put his name to, so the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah is only found in the Bible in the Christian New Testament, in the Gospel of John. And second, just as the poem is about the night before Christmas, Today's devotional is actually going to focus on a message from the day before Hanukkah. Actually, today's event took place 356 years and one day before the first celebration of Hanukkah. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's head to Jerusalem at the time of Haggai the prophet. We've arrived on December 18, 520 BC. The days are short, the night's long, and the weather's cool, and the people are in a state of high anxiety. Exactly three months ago, they had resumed building the temple after a 15-year delay. They did so in response to God's words through Haggai the prophet. Because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces. On the 24th day of the sixth month, the people came together to begin rebuilding the temple. But the work wasn't going according to plan. Some of those who had been around when Solomon's temple was standing felt the new construction paled in comparison. Who of you is left who saw the house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Their discouraging comparison to the past was causing others to lose heart. Even more distressingly, God's promised blessing of rain still hadn't arrived. It's now the 24th day of the ninth month, December 18, and the drought appears to be continuing. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. Haggai explained why in his third message. The people thought God ought to bless them since they were doing his work. But though their hands were doing the work, They hadn't allowed God to make an impact on their hearts. Haggai compares it to someone who was ritually impure from touching a dead body and then coming into contact with something consecrated. The consecrated object doesn't impart purity to the individual. Rather, the impure individual defiles the pure object through contact. Lock two people in a room, one who has the flu and one who doesn't. In their interaction, the breath of the one without flu won't cure the person who's sick. But the germs from the person who's sick will likely travel to and infect the one who's healthy. In the same way, building God's temple didn't make the people holy. But if they remained impure, then they were actually defiling the very temple that they hoped would restore God's presence among them. After calling on them to repent, Haggai ends his third message with a promise from God. From this day on, I will bless you. Perhaps the sky darkened that very afternoon as the first major rain of the season brought the showers of blessing to water the parched land. These events took place 356 years and one day before the start of the original Hanukkah celebration. 
But if Hanukkah is never mentioned in the Old Testament, how do we know when it's to be celebrated? First Maccabees 4.59 identified the time it was to be held. It says, Judas and his brothers and all the assembly of Israel determined that every year at that season, the days of dedication of the altar should be observed with joy and gladness for eight days, beginning with the 25th day of the month Kislev. Haggai's final two messages were on the 24th day of the month Kislev, just 356 years and one day earlier. But how do these events connect to each other, to Hanukkah, to Jesus, and to us? Haggai's messages prompted the people to resume rebuilding the second temple. Hanukkah commemorates the rededication of that temple following its desecration at the hands of Antiochus Epiphanes. Zerubbabel was from the line of David, but from the family of King Jehoiachin, who had been cursed by God in Jeremiah 22. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule any more in Judah. But because of his faithfulness, God now promises Zerubbabel, this descendant from the cursed line of Jehoiachin, I will take you, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. And Jesus? Well, John 10.22 describes the encounter between Jesus and the religious leaders in the temple during the Feast of Dedication. In Hebrew, the word Hanukkah means dedication. This encounter in John 10 takes place during the Feast of Hanukkah, and their question got right to the point. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus told them that he had made that declaration through the miracles he'd performed in the Father's name. And then he announced his promise of eternal life to those who follow him. He could do this because I and the Father are one. They understood his claim to be divine, and they were ready to kill him as a result. This week is the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah. Haggai called on the people to dedicate themselves to the task of rebuilding the temple but more importantly, to dedicate themselves first to God rather than living lives that were defiled. The second temple later needed to be rededicated to God after it was defiled by Antiochus Epiphanes. And still later, the Messiah himself walked through that temple during Hanukkah, claiming equality with God the Father and calling on those listening to believe and become his followers. And he promised to give them eternal life. Take some time this week to read John 10, 22-42 and focus on Jesus' words during the festival of Hanukkah. And then, if you're a follower of Jesus, rededicate your life to follow Him anew. What a great way to enter the Christmas season by dedicating yourself to the one whose birth we will soon celebrate. Thank you, Charlie. Appreciate that devotional. If you'd like to hear it again or the entire program, head online to our website, thelandandthebook.org, and share the podcast with a friend so they can listen too at thelandandthebook.org. I'm John Geiger for our host, Charlie Dyer. Thank you for listening to The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. See you next time.